0: Hello, everyone. My name is Giorgos Yanakopoulos, and I'm a historian of modern Europe and Britain, currently affiliated with King's College and City University of London. I have recently edited a special issue for the History of European Ideas journal titled Britain, European Civilization, and the Idea of Liberty. The issue features a dozen of articles by a diverse group of historians and political theorists focusing on various aspects of the triangular relationship between Britain, Europe, and liberty during the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by some of the issue's contributors. Together, we will discuss their articles and reflect on the wider themes stemming out of the special issue. Before I turn to them, I'd like to offer a word of introduction to the theme and to my own contribution. The planning for this issue emerged out of the realization that although the European question, so-called, uh, has played a key role in, in the post-war evolution of British historiography, the dynamic pattern of British continental exchanges is a rather peripheral topic for British historians interested in the history of intellectuals and in the circulation of political ideas. Rather than focusing on canonical thinkers and reconstructing the history of the emergence of liberty as a normative concept, The articles featured in this issue focus on instances that discuss Britain's role as a place of refuge for Europeans, as well as on the impact of political ideas and concepts originating from Europe. The case studies recounted in the issue's articles are critical of self-congratulatory and ultimately of deceptive assessments of Britain's special relationship with liberty, reinforced by the ideal of the ancient constitution its parliamentary traditions, the commitment to free trade, and so on. The articles track the dynamic circulation of concepts across national and imperial contexts. They recover the thinking of lesser-known scholars, uncover relatively understudied episodes of British-European relations, or even revisit relatively familiar cases. Now, some of the questions that concern the core features of the special issue revolve around the early 19th century language of asylum in Britain, circulation of ideas about the West and Western civilization, the impact of continental radical ideas in British politics and culture, as well as the continental features of British internationalism and ideas of Englishness. My own contribution revisits the impact that the Eastern question had on late Victorian liberalism. It discusses the strategies of exclusion employed in the internationalist debate on Southeastern Europe and the Balkans by focusing on the writings of the British archaeologist Arthur Evans. I investigate Evans's archaeological practice and commentary on the Bosnian and Albanian question to show how he mobilized the language of race to recast the Balkans as one of the key birthplaces of European civilization. Now, I'd like to start this discussion by moving On to Thomas Jones, Thomas uh, lectures in history at the University of Buckingham.
1: Well, thanks very much, George. The title of my contribution is Establishing a Constitutional Right of Asylum in Early 19th Century Britain. And I suppose it is investigating the origins of of one of these ideas about one of these uh, kind of traditional ideas about Britain's so-called special relationship with liberty, as you put it, George. Most of my work before this has been on European refugees in the UK during the middle of the 19th century. And in that era and in subsequent generations, really into the early 20th century, it was fairly commonplace for supporters of refugees to talk about a right of asylum as a right that individuals could claim that was protected by the British constitution. And it was usually compared to things like hobbyist corpus and the free press and freedom of speech and things like this. So my article seeks to sort of explore the intellectual origins of that idea that the British constitution contained something that could, could be called a right of asylum. So my my piece focuses on primarily the decade or so after the Napoleonic Wars, and I argue that the notion of a right of asylum as a constitutional right, as it's later uh, argued for in the 19th and the 20th century, really coheres in that fairly contentious period uh, of British politics, and specifically it coheres in debates around the Alien Acts, which were regularly renewed pieces of legislation that had been initiated in 1793, when Britain and France were on the verge of war, uh, but carried forward after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And this was legislation that, in its initial um, iteration, provided all kinds of uh, powers to ministers to control the resident alien population in the UK. After the Napoleonic Wars came to an end, uh, they were sort of loosened up a bit and, and really only retained a few of those powers, notably the right to uh, for the Home uh, Secretary to summarily deport aliens that were deemed to be threatening to public security. These were allowed to lapse in 1826, but in the decade between the Napoleonic Wars and 1826, there was a very vociferous debate about them. So I argue that these debates took place in a constitutionalist idiom, um, which was prevalent in the time. And in part, Whigs and radicals argued that the Tory government was simply being arbitrary, that this was another instance of the arbitrary government that you could see at play um, in the suspension of habeas corpus at home, Uh, the Peterloo Massacre, things like this. Um, Aliens are being subjected to an executive that is not bound by any kind of law that can just sort of arbitrarily deport people. Um, But more particularly, there was an effort to kind of try to reconstruct the history of the rights of aliens in the UK and in England, dating back to Magna Carta. Opposition figures also argue that habeas corpus does apply to foreigners on the same grounds as it applies to British subjects. So if you take all of that, plus the historical precedent of many waves of of religious and and political refugees coming to England, Britain, the UK, since the Protestant Reformation, really, you have what constitutes a kind of right of asylum. And that term, the right of asylum, is being used by the mid-1820s, and um, the same particular arguments used in the 1810s and 1820s to establish that there was a right of asylum in the British constitution is then picked up again and again in the 1850s at uh, the beginning of the 20th century uh, when there are various sort of controversies over the presence of, of foreign nationals. So that's the conclusion that the article comes to. That There's this kind of uh, process of argumentation that builds and then finally coheres right around the middle of the 1820s to argue that the British constitution contains this right of asylum.
0: Thank you, Thomas, for this. Moving on, another theme that's being explored in um, the special issue concerns the impact uh, that the Paris Commune had in, uh, in British politics, and specifically the British socialist imagination. And now I want to move on to Laura Foster, who authored an article on this theme. Laura.
2: Uh, thanks very much, George. I'm Laura Forster and I am a lecturer at Durham University now. Um, and my piece for this uh, special issue uh, is titled uh, The Paris Commune in the British Socialist Imagination, 1871 to 1914. And really it's uh, concerned with the, the the memory of the, the Paris Commune, uh, the iconic uprising uh, and a provisional government set up um, by the people of Paris in 1871. Uh, that lasted just a few months. Um, and looks at the the way in which the memory of that event um manifested in Britain um in the decades after. After it was put down, in many ways, it's about how the commune was incorporated into the kind of mythology and the the, the kind of canon of British socialism. So I think, in uh, more broadly, then this, uh, the ways in which, if we look at the ways in which uh, the events of 1871 captured the British socialist imagination, um, it sort of counters some of those bigger myths about um, British kind of uh, exceptionalism or the insularity of British socialism uh, in this period. And in fact, shows that that British socialism was made through the incorporation and appropriation of both native and foreign ideas and symbols and traditions. So following the defeat of the commune in 1871, as I say, uh, thousands of communards uh, fled France to to avoid imprisonment or death. And as a result, uh, and due in part to Britain's liberal asylum policy that Thomas just um, alluded to uh, in the 19th century, uh, around 3,000 communal refugees came to, to Britain. So that was um, uh, active members of the commune, as well as their families and other sympathisers. Um, and so these these uh, refugees of the commune certainly left their mark on the political landscape and mindscape of Britain. Uh, and I talk about that in, in other work. Um, but instead, this article is really more interested in the kind of longer afterlives of the commune in Britain, the ways in which the commune and its ideas and symbols Uh, influenced um, this burgeoning socialist movement uh, in late 19th century Britain. And what I hope the article shows is that it was precisely because Britain had been home to these exiles of the commune in the 1870s that the mythology and the symbolism of the commune was so appealing and useful in Britain. The commune was foreign enough then to kind of transcend regional and factional squabbles and brought together this quite disparate and young socialist movement in Britain. Um, And it brought them together once a year uh, in a kind of... uh, otherwise quite a rare expression of unity but then equally the fact that uh, the commune had uh, been in britain and act- and had actually come to britain and lived there and taken refuge there made the memory of the commune sort of homegrown enough for britain, british socialists to claim it as their own i hope that the, the article shows how perhaps this idea of the insularity of british socialism needs to be nuanced a little bit and that we while we you know take it as a given that the the english past is very important in the kind of construction of identities and rituals within British socialism, you know, thinking about the kind of medieval past uh, and William Morris, the idea of Mary England. We also need to take seriously that British socialists identified with different pasts uh, and different presence um, outside of the nation. And acknowledging one doesn't exclude the other. So the commune is a really useful lens into some of that to show how these uh, events elsewhere could become really important symbols. It helped British socialists both to articulate their internationalism and make links with others abroad, but also, you know, and perhaps counterintuit- counterintuitively, helped British socialists to to fashion their own kind of more local, regional, and national identities as well around um, these kind of meetings and commemorations of the commune. It's, a, it's very much a piece about the the, the kind of idea of um, places beyond Britain having an effect um, within Britain and how that helps to sort of shape uh, and furnish. Uh, the, the burgeoning British socialist movement, with uh, symbols, uh, myths, stories, uh, and, uh, and and a quite powerful kind of slogans, "Vive la Commune," being uh, the main one that I'm referring to here.
0: Thank you, Laura. I should also mention that in the special issue there are other articles focusing on similar topics, such as Alex Middleton's piece on mid-Victorian liberalism in the Austrian state or Lara Green's article on Russian revolutionary terrorism and the problem of empire. Moving on towards the 20th century, another key theme in this triangular relationship between Britain, Europe and liberty is the reform of the British Empire and the extent of British internationalism. This cluster of themes is being addressed by a number of papers, Tomohito Badge's The British Commonwealth as a Liberal International Avatar, as well as Ginny Moorfield's Families of Mankind, British Liberty, League Internationalism, and the Question of Traffic. I now turn to Jenny Morfield. Jenny works at Birmingham University. Jenny, many thanks for joining. I'll let you introduce yourself and your paper.
3: Thanks, George. I appreciate it. Um, and thanks for putting this together. This was an, an amazing special issue. Um, I'm I'm actually a, an associate professor in political theory at the University of Birmingham, and I'm also. Um, a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C., which sort of gives you a little sense of the kind of weird work ID, which is um, uh, sort of in the middle between thinking about foreign policy and international politics and um, um, political theory and uh, intellectual history. And what I try and do in this piece is think about the League's long-term interest in the traffic in women and children as a mirror in some important ways, into a particular kind of internationalism, which I'm calling familial internationalism, that merges out of this particular understanding of British liberty, which um, was related to um, a particular liberal imperialist reading of what internationalism in the early 20th century would look like. Um, And Early 20th century internationalism for some of the key thinkers who would go on to shape most of the documents and founding documents of the League um, was about reconciling or, um, as Mark Mazauer and other people would say, uh, squaring the circle between international hierarchy or the maintenance of a world which was still largely Um, the parlance of European empires with something that was called, you know, international liberty, um, the sort of freedom of of nations to um, interact with each other, um, a kind of commitment to sovereignty, which wasn't actually sovereign. Um, And I say that familial internationalism is able to kind of square the circle between that notion of liberty and basically the continuance of uh, uh, imperialism by making nationhood and what we consider to be most important about states um, a reflection of cultural and familial norms rather than um, political norms about sovereignty. Um, And then the traffic of women and children plays an interesting role in this because the League gets kind of obsessed with this as an issue um, and they're obsessed with the idea that women and children are being moved across these familial borders Um, for purposes of sexual exploitation, and the paper sort of traces the move away from the language of um, uh, white slavery, which happened very abruptly in 1919, and then toward this language of traffic, and then looks kind of intensely at the the internal dynamics and discussions going on within the League's committee, and the way they tended to replicate um, a kind of familial logic about nations, the way they obsessed about um, what they called licensed houses and um, and the way that that then got used in really interesting ways to as an example of a kind of universalist commitment to liberty on the part of the league. Um, so that's what the paper does and it's part in my mind of a larger project that looks at the issue of sex trafficking um, as the kind of linchpin that holds together similar, um, hierarchical or internally unstable ideas about politics, um, and we can see that um, in contemporary um, British discourse about about people smuggling, but also um, in places as bizarre as the QAnon fixation with um, with the sex trafficking habits, evidently, of Hillary Clinton and uh, you know the, the rest of the Democrats. So that's what the paper does: It thinks through liberty as a concept in that idea, and then uses the traffic in women and children um, to illustrate it.
0: Thank you, Jeannie. Another core feature of 20th century British and European history is the connection between freedom of movement and the practice of internment. And now I'd like to bring to our discussion Dina Yusenova. Dina?
4: Yes, thanks very much, uh, George, and thanks for bringing us together. Um, so I'm Dina Yusenova. I'm an intellectual historian, primarily of uh, German Uh, working on German material, and um, I have typically explored ideas of of Europe, really, among German-speaking intellectuals, uh, uh, widely defined as not only people coming from Germany itself, but actually people working within German intellectual traditions on the continent. And um, this paper was, for me, an opportunity to uh, kind of connect with British historiography following the trail of, um, expelled German speaking, um, thinkers who came to Britain as a kind of haven of liberty during the, um, rise of the, the Nazi regime, the expansion of, um, Nazi Germany. And they, they came to Britain. Many of them came as students or as, uh, early career scholars. Um, and, uh, but then found themselves interned, as, uh, George alluded to, uh, on the Isle of Man during, um, and now, um, much discussed um episode but uh, for a while it was an episode that was kind of forgotten really from british historiography of the second world war um which was the the uh, a period when um about 14,000 uh, civilians were turned um as uh people who constituted potentially a threat a uh, kind of fifth column um a, a threat to to british security and they were turned in the, on the isle of man for strategic reasons following a precedent that had already been established in the first world war uh, now, for me, this this episode is of interest um, for kind of several reasons. First, I'm always interested in the kind of connections between social milieus and the way ideas emerge. So I'm sort of looking at these involuntary intellectual communities um, of people who find themselves interned and the kinds of ideas that spring up in the, in, in the sort of contact that ultimately emerges between them and also um, the local monks community and uh, broader uh, discourses in, in um Uh, well British thought at the time Um, and um, a second um, kind of link that I that that I found that interested me um, was um, uh, sort of this idea of trying to reconstruct how um, eight territorial ideas of Englishness of democracy of liberty get transformed in a local setting so doing a kind of site-specific history of uh, of ideas in a way, so it was a sort of experiment. Um, and um, in that sense, uh, the paper itself, I suppose, in terms of the narrative arc of the issue, sits somewhere between uh, the themes um, charted by Thomas Jones in uh, in tracking wh- where he tracks the kind of transformation of discourse from the Alien Act, from the kind of the anti alien direction of eighteenth um, century legislation to the a discourse around the right of asylum. Um, and these themes kind of spring up again in the Second World War. Um, and, and then the, uh, the themes charted in Richard Toy's, um, intellectual history of Churchill's thought on, uh, British liberty, uh, in contrast to what, he, what Churchill called the downtrodden peoples of Central and Eastern Europe. So I suppose what I'm looking at are these kind of a subsample of these downtrodden peoples. Uh, so intellectuals like Norbert Elias, um, Nikolaus Pevsner, Otto Neurath, and so on. People who had come to Britain, um, from, uh, escaping from, I suppose, what Churchill would call tyranny in Europe. Um, and, um, and who then unexpectedly find themselves interned and so caught between these two poles of, uh, British legal traditions. On the one hand, Britain as a haven of people fleeing from tyranny. On the other hand, um, Britain as a, um, place where uh, the rights of asylum are debated against uh, the dangers coming from such refugees who might bring dangerous political ideas or subversive political ideas uh, to Britain. Um, and I'm interested in exploring, um, first of all, uh, one observation that I made in in the paper is that, well, rather interestingly, the, uh, the intellectuals who find themselves there, 80% of them are Jewish, many of them are kind of left-leaning socialists who are Uh, escaping Nazi uh, Germany or um, uh, Austria uh, for not only for reasons of being persecuted as Jews, but also for political reasons um, at the same time. So they find themselves in Britain, and what I found is that as they are exposed to um, various kinds of lectures on the history of uh, English liberty, uh, generally English and British cultural political history in the camp, they, they in a way start developing a kind of Victorian idea of Englishness, which comes rather close to a, uh, well, a, a kind of benign imperialism, a kind of, uh, yeah, a kind of sympathy for a benign imperialism that is characteristic of late Victorian British political thought, but from which British liberalists, ri- liberals at the time were already moving away. So they, uh, so in, in some ways, these kind of left intellectuals, um, as, uh, through the internment experience, uh, become assimilated into a kind of um, a generation, uh, the political thought of a generation earlier in Britain that has already been surpassed in a way in in British political thought itself. But secondly, they also um, become the occasion for a kind of uh, recovery of a type of debate that Thomas Jones has alluded to in the 19th century, that that there was a debate uh, in which um, liberals, but also conservative MPs like Victor Casale were articulating in the, in the House of Commons um, and in other um, venues, um, public outlets and newspapers um, in the 1940s, that this uh, practice of interning uh, civilians was totally un-English, was kind of subverting the spirit of liberty that um, England has come to be associated with. Um, and so it, in that sense, this idea of Englishness that I'm trying to recover among um, these interned um, intellectuals is also... Um, then echo, echoed and um, and absorbed in um, English discourses at the same time and political discourses. Um, so um, I, I'm looking at the process in which um, the internees form intellectual communities. So the idea of Englishness that emerges on the Isle of Man in the camp newspapers that are produced by these um, intellectuals. And I'm also tra- tracking this to the subsequent publications from the 1950s to the 1970s. Um, and secondly, I'm interested in the idea of Englishness about the Isle of Man, in a way, about the Isle of Man incident, which circulates in British parliamentary debates and um, and newspapers. Uh, so this is kind of the uh, the framework of, of the paper. And, um, well, I suppose it amounts to a kind of social history of the idea of English liberty among Central European exiles um, interned on the island.
0: Well, thank you, Dina. And as you just mentioned, uh, it's hard to omit Churchill from any discussion on Europe, Britain and liberty. Joining us today is one of the world leading authorities on Churchill, Professor Richard Toy uh, from Exeter University. Richard.
5: Thank you very much, George, for your very kind comment. Um, My article is, as you say, about Winston Churchill, and it considers three things. It considers Churchill's attitude to classical learning it considers his his experiences of european travel and it considers his attitude to the bolsheviks uh, which he regarded uh, in some respects as the barbaric antithesis of civilization now you may say what have these three things got to do with each other and what have they got to do with the theme of the special issue well my argument is uh, a complex one but it's, it, you know, I argue that these things are sort of intimately related and are really important to understanding Churchill's worldview. So, Churchill, as a young man, had considerable experience of you know, free movement, if you want to call it that, uh, across Europe. In you know, uh, traveling to Switzerland, Germany, France, in a sort of civilized way, probably not having to show his passport very much, being able to communicate. Uh, with his you know, friends and family very very easily, and that was really uh, something which I think he looked back on in a nostalgic way after Europe had been torn apart by two world wars, and this to a considerable extent was what he wanted to recreate when he was talking about a united Europe at the same time he uh, became more and more skeptical about speedy travel, so that he was actually an enthusiast for technology but Uh, By late in life, he was sort of lamenting uh, the um, sort of decline of horse travel, and he uh, referred to what he called the infernal combustion engine. So he was becoming more and more sceptical about speedier and globalised locomotion in the 20th century. Now, how do these things match up with uh, his ideas about classical learning? Well, he wasn't famously, wasn't very keen on the classics school, wasn't particularly good at them. Um, But... He, late in life, perhaps even during World War II, uh, he became considerably more enthusiastic and overcame his previous scepticism. And he argued that um, a united Europe of the kind that he was advocating in his 1946 Zurich speech and after could act as a vehicle for spiritual and cultural values which had been passed down from the ancient world and which he saw as part of, the, of Europe's Christian heritage. Um, and so although he wasn't a conventional religious believer, believer uh, he still did believe in sort of kind of fate and destiny. And he also saw these these forces operating together uh, to, with with Christian culture in the political space, which he still referred to as Christendom, which he saw as the spiritual inheritor of Greece and Rome. So in a nutshell, uh, what the article tries to do is to weave these themes together to uh, provide a coherent account of how these these disparate things fitted together uh, to create his view of civilization. And then the question arises: this is the third point. Where did Russia and the Soviet Union fit in? Well, it, it basically it, it occupied a kind of a liminal position, so that Russia could sometimes fit into the sort of the European civilizational space and sometimes not. So that under the early phase of Bolshevism, the Civil War period, uh, the period where Trotsky was influential, he saw uh, the Soviet Union as being sort of totally beyond the pale of civilization and having declined into barbarism. Strangely enough, you may think, he thought that Stalin uh, was actually uh, moving Russia back to what he saw as a more civilized uh, system of government, uh, and that therefore uh, the, the Soviet Union could potentially become a member of this civilized European space. But of course, as events uh, moved on, as, as geopolitical forces changed, uh, the Soviet Union could sort of slip in and out of, of this space which Churchill labeled civilized. And so What the article tries to do is to bring these three themes together, to try to weave them into a coherent account of Churchill's worldview, and also to suggest that this was a dynamic worldview which shifted across time. It wasn't however important uh, the the legacy of his youthful experiences in the Victorian age were. His ideas were were never set in stone. They continued to evolve until very late in his
0: life. Great, Richard. Thank you. Today, we've moved beyond the language of European civilization. And as a means to uh, conclude this podcast, I'd like to get everyone to reflect on what I call the triangular relation between Britain, Europe and liberty from today's perspective. So a question I have in mind, and I'd like to address to all of you is, what would, in your views, be the most pressing myths in the study of this triangular relationship, but also in current political debate. And uh, what kind of research w- you think we need more if we are to shed light on hidden aspects or revisit certain myths to do with the relation between Euro- Britain Europe and conceptions and ideas and ideals of liberty? Richard? Uh, so
5: I think that one of the great contributions of this special issue is that it tries to integrate the history of Britain and the UK with the history of mainland Europe. And I think that is a a problem. You ask, what should we be trying to do more of? And I think that we face a problem that on the one hand, historians of Britain have not sufficiently looked across the channel and tried to really contextualise Britain uh, within European history. You know, we often talk about the need to decolonise uh, British history, but perhaps we also, in addition to doing that, need to Euro- Europeanize uh, British history. And I think that, uh, on the other hand, it may also be the case that historians of Western Europe actually tend to draw the boundary line, uh, you know, at, at, at Calais as well, and that um, they perhaps in a sort of perverse form of revenge for the British you know, historians of Britain, not talking about Europe, uh, they tend to exclude uh, you know, Britain from the, the, the sort of the mainstream story of Western Europe, which reinforces various um you know, myths, uh, I suppose the myth of, of British exceptionalism that we, we've already touched on. So, of course, one can always point to exceptions, and of course the people who have contributed to this special issue are you know, among those exceptions, but I think that in general what we need more of is uh, the attempt to show where Britain fits in uh, intellectually, politically, and with its European neighbours.
0: Laura?
2: Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, George. And I think, um, uh, yeah, the special issue does a great job of showing that there's all these kind of connections that maybe um, have been deemed sort of peripheral to like the British story, whatever that might be. But in fact, you know, with interrogation, we see that all these kind of cases covered in the issue and far, far beyond um, actually become quite integral to um, understandings of Britain, both within and, and without um, Britain itself. And I think partly, I mean, from my point of view, thinking about the 19th century, and obviously because I've worked on, you know, um, like Thomas, working on kind of populations of um, uh, exiles or political refugees from Europe within Britain. Um, I think what you see in the kind of scholarship is these two two things going on. So on the one hand, you've got, um, as Richard just mentioned, as we talked about before, this kind of, um, the real prevalence of this idea of a kind of uh, British exceptionalism or a, a type of insularity. Or um, I mean, as I find looking at radical and socialist politics in Britain, this idea that um, Britain was doing it its own way—that was quite distinct um, from what was going on on the continent um, and and a a separate sort of British story. Um, So you get this kind of um, uh, that that sort of myth of exceptionalism that is is constantly kind of—it still feels very, very sort of prevalent. Um, And then on the other hand, you also have this really prevalent kind of idea of of, um, British liberty. Again, as Thomas has has mentioned, um, and and talks about a lot in his paper, um, that you know this sort of uh, British pride in um, throughout the nineteenth century and earlier being very much a refuge, um, not uh, kind of turning anybody away. This kind of benevolent powerhouse, I guess, um, dispensing liberty uh, as it were. And it's interesting because those, you know, these two things. So on the one hand, is like a lack of recognition about um, perhaps foreign influence in this kind of British story, and on the other hand. Um, really championing the idea that Britain was a home um, for people from elsewhere. And so I think what needs to happen is a recognition that, that Britain, you know, providing this kind of liberty or, um, you know, the fact that the, the British history is, uh, you know, a story of people from elsewhere being in Britain. Um, what needs to happen maybe is more of a recognition that this isn't just kind of, this doesn't just tell us about British liberty, that these various different populations and different peoples and different ideas coming to Britain are are absolutely integral in the fabric of, of British history they're not a kind of peripheral story that's what what is British history in the 19th century and you know across British history so I think kind of rather than uh it, it's, it's a sort of a kind of a way of bringing together um or, or thinking more uh, more profoundly about um foreign presence in Britain and also then uh, as a way of sort of um challenging or nuancing this idea of British exceptionalism or uh, a British story that's very separate from the continent. So in a way, kind of bringing those kind of strands together.
0: Yeah. And this perspective makes the exceptionalist story less exceptional and breaks away with the special relation that many think Britain has with liberty. Genie.
3: Yeah, thanks. Just to, in a way, just to echo what uh, you guys have been saying, what Richard and Laura have really articulated so well. I think that also one of the things that that the special issue does is it really highlights the kind of conceptual heavy lifting that the, the concept of liberty does and the way it works to enable certain narratives while obscuring others. And as you guys have pointed out, obscuring connections, both between Britain and Europe, between Britain and its colonies, um, between the sort of resonances of Britain's connections with its own empire and with Europe today. Um, and particularly at a moment when there are, you know, all of these compl- complicated um, stories or, or narratives about immigration in circulation, um, and when people are working through what it means to be British in the concept, you know, context of of the empire and of these new um, immigration narratives, so I just think that that one of the things it does is to both highlight those connections. And to highlight what liberty does, and then can I just add that, like as an American who studies the relationship between early twentieth century British imperialism, contemporary American imperialism, that like the resonance there between the kinds of exceptionalism and the work that liberty does are very similar, and they and they move in similar ways, and they're both obfuscating in similar ways. And I think one of the beautiful things about this um, collection is just. That it really bores into, you know, what Edward Said would call the disruptive detail of history in order to be able to ferret that out.
0: Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, Thomas. Yeah, to thanks.
1: Um, no, some some excellent points made there by everyone. Um, I suppose maybe one thing to add would be to emphasize how we need to think about um, exceptionalism as as not sort of something or the ideas of British exceptionalism or the idea that Britain is exceptional is not something that's static over time, really. Um, the the sort of work of identity building and claiming that Britain is exceptional is, of course, always done kind of in uh, conversation and dialogue with what's happening um, with its neighbours, um, perhaps most obviously, uh, in our case, in the case of special issue with um, its European neighbours, but of course, with its sort of uh, global neighbors and its its empire and, and that sort of thing. And I just, I'm thinking about um, the piece that I wrote and then what happens to the kind of ideas that I was describing as the 19th century unfolded, you know, a lot of the kind of um, claims that Britain was, uh, had this exceptional kind of um, free constitution that unlike the kind of arbitrary and unconstitutional uh, authoritarian states of Europe guaranteed you know rights for individuals including uh, you know the most politically marginalized refugees I mean much of that uh, argumentation is happening specifically because this is a moment in the late uh, sorry early 19th century when the political constitutional cultural sort of divide between Britain and much of continental Europe seems particularly stark but by the time you get to the later 19th century and I don't know if Laura maybe has found this in, in some of her work but um the that divide in some ways has has um lessened a bit. So, you know, it's one thing to to welcome sort of refugees that have been in an, you know, open rebellion against the Papal States or the absolutist monarchies of uh Austria or, or Prussia or something like that. It's another to welcome uh I don't know, communards or anarchists or other revolutionaries who have uh, you know, engaged in acts of violence against the French Third Republic or the Kingdom of Italy, which have sort of constitutions and proclaimed values that are sort of similar to Britain's, and so that that uh, notion of you know, well, we're exceptional, and therefore in in these particular ways, and therefore we must welcome all refugees, um, that is seriously weakened in the late nineteenth century. So, what it is that Britain is actually exceptional for? Uh, is something that is, that's kind of constantly changing and constantly needs to be uh, interrogated, I think. And I think that has pretty obvious um, sort of resonances in the current moment that we're in when, um, you know, talk of British exceptionalism is very widespread uh, and very dominant in sort of current politics, but what exactly differentiates it from its neighbours What it is so important to, you know, sort of emphasizes being exceptional for is far less clear I think so that's maybe one thing I would add
0: Thank you Thomas Dina has a point
4: uh, yes thank you I, I've enjoyed these these comments actually um, I had a lot of a lot to think about and um, just to add one more thing um, I thought that w- what I learned really from these discussions and what I would like to continue thinking about more is the function of these kinds of myths in in um, in the way that, uh, in, well, in in, in contemporary conflicts, So um, the myth of, of British liberty, a myth not in the sense of a kind of something which is not true, but myth in the sense of a story, right, of sort of parable that explains uh, various states of affairs, so kind of slightly simplified, but not necessarily simple um, story. And it seems that in, in this kind of myth of uh, British liberty, certain conflicts um, are uh, crucial. So the Napoleonic Wars... Um, um, the second world war but also um events like um uh, well, uh, like oh uh, phenomena like british philhellenism and um sort of the interest british interest in other um in other nations to the extent that they help uh, underline the the contrast in a way be, between uh, the british constitution or the the constitutional character of the absent constitution in a way um and and the um the various um Subversions of liberty that uh, are supposedly um, taking place outside of um, of uh, the territory of, uh, of of Britain. I think what we need to think further is, um, and more specifically, is what happens after nineteen forty five um, to these different myths, particularly as um, uh, as uh, uh, decolonization, the end of empire um, occur, but also under the conditions of the Cold War. I think that needs to, uh, more kind of. Uh, systematic sort of thinking perhaps now uh, that we are in this period uh, kind of rather a long time already from the end of the Cold War. But um, these themes seem to have come together somehow again in in a new way. So the contrast between uh, the myth um, in Britain and and the kinds of groups that are interested in uh, working further on underlining these differences. So kind of the way that actions and events contribute to the making of ideologies, but also the kind of transformation of ideologies, like what does liberalism mean today as opposed to the 19th century, or uh, what is an English conservative today as opposed to the 1930s. Um, so I, I felt like the the issue has really helped um, de-essentialize in a way various kinds of ideologies and not only national ones, but also supposedly transnational ideologies like, like yeah, like liberalism, republicanism, um, in these directions. So, uh, yeah, I think we should. I think we should continue thinking about de-essentializing these and historicizing them, particularly in the period after forty-five. I mean, at least in discourse, not necessarily in,
2: in our work, um, to, to to understand how these stories continue uh, to our present. Laura, Yeah, is right in terms of um, thinking about what happens later, and and also as Thomas said that the idea of kind of what's exceptional is is in flux. I think also that the idea of sort of Britishness, of course, is uh, is in flux in different ways and you know, looking at the the nineteenth century and thinking about a, an idea of Britishness in, in relation to Europe um, and empire versus, you know, in 45 thinking about what Britishness means um with decolonization and and the kind of reconceptualization of Britishness, which is created to, you know, exclude different sets of people, um, or to to create different configurations of you know, what were former British colonies or what, uh, you know, then become part of the Commonwealth. And and the whole, you know, conception of Britishness um, is elastic and shifts um, to suit different uh, agendas at this time. So I think Dina's right that that's a really important place to kind of, you know, post-45 to kind of test some of the ways in which Britishness or ideas of British liberty, which con- <clears throat> have been conceived in the, in the 19th century, is a lot of us, uh, quite a few of the pieces in the issue look at and, and how um, those kind of transform later. Um, I don't really have an answer to that, but I think it's a really, yeah, really important area to focus on. And I think that the, 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 issue, the special issue raises those questions well. But there's a lot, a lot to kind of um, answer
1: you know, in terms of the later period, certainly. Thomas. I was just going to respond to uh, what Laura was saying about um, you know kind of ideas of, of Britishness being in in flux, and I, I I absolutely agree with that, and think we also need to remember that they're constantly contested as well. Um, that we shouldn't we shouldn't think that there's ever really a moment where the parameters of of what it means to be British or not be British are ever kind of universally accepted. Um, the period I'm you know working on in for for my article for this issue have people arguing on one side that anyone who happens to be present in the British Isles, who happens to you know, be standing on British soil, is essentially British. Um, and then that, that of course, is, is far from universally contested. In, in, in the post-war period, in the post-1945 period, you know the extension of British citizenship to peoples of the empire was effected in law for a period of time, but was never fully accepted and of course was then laterally reversed. And I think we're currently living through a moment where the parameters of who gets to call themselves British and on what terms, um, and who crucially is excluded from that, um, is very much well up in the air again, is being redefined. um, And it will likely look very different in a few years time than it did, at least in terms of the law um, and the prevailing um, sort of dominant consensus. Um, than, it, than it did a few years ago.
0: And Thomas, the same applies for you know what counts as European or what are the values that one attributes to you know a certain understanding of what it is to be part of quote unquote European civilization. For instance, in my article, the, the kind of liberal nationalist or internationalist view of what Eastern Europe is at the time, that's to say the Victorian period is, is pretty much Christian and um, there's no much space. For in the discourse of freedom for non-Christian entities that, as we know, were part of the history of the region. And on that point, I should also mention, obviously, that today in our discussion, we have a few of the authors of the articles featuring in the special issue. There are many more articles that, uh, sadly, the authors weren't available to join us in this podcast. But uh, by looking it up, the history of European ideas, it's volume 46, issue 5, you Will have the uh, ability to read uh, all of them and uh, take part in the conversation that we have been building up. I'd like to thank all my guests today and thank you for listening.